Hello, one and all, and welcome to the podcast we call the Fantastival with myself, Steve Nussbaum, in the podcast where I invite my friends and my guests to come on, talk to me all about their musical tastes, experiences, and collate their fantasy festivals, which I have christened Fantastivals. Unbelievably, now we are in episode number. 48. We are actually coming up to the Fantastical Podcast's first birthday, which is on the 12th of May. So happy birthday to us, and we'll talk more about that next week. And I'm delighted for this 48th episode to introduce a guest who I hadn't heard of much up until a couple of weeks ago, where uh, the name came up in episode 14 in Salmon's podcast. And he mentioned a band who he recommended. I got into the band, I listened to it, I thought, this is amazing. Made contact with this gent who was up for coming onto the podcast so it's the author of the superb too high too far too soon book and frontman of the excellent high town pirates who we're going to find out all about today it's the one and only it's mr simon mason good, good afternoon the one and only thank god for that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mate thank yeah. you so much for joining me to start off i always ask people like how are they doing how they've been it's been an a strange 12 13 months now almost out the woods hopefully mate how are you simon I'm, you know what, I'm okay. I, um, in fact, I've got my um, my appointment for my vaccine. I've got the dates through, so I Tuesday I'm going to have a vaccine. You know, I'm not going to discuss. Pe- people can think whatever. It's I'm, I've chosen to to go with it. I'm going to have a vaccine. My wife's got hers this evening, so I, I'm just going to go with that. I believe that that what I'm being told that this might be, you know, the a positive step in the right direction for us all to get back to some kind of normality again. Like that, I think it's a good thing. Mental health stuff, I think we, that's become something we all talk about. Some days, this is it's like a walk in the park, you know. Other days, it feels like a park that you don't want to walk into, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. Total sense. Uh, yeah, but I'm all right. Thank you. Good. Well, that's good. So, normally at this point, I, I kind of ask my guests to tell us a bit more about themselves, and that can take anywhere between five and ten minutes. But you've got quite the story, obviously. You've written the book on it, and like I said at the beginning, there is a book all about your life up. Well, up was written in two thousand six to up until that point, and you've had you've had quite the journey throughout it. So I guess as a starting point, tell us a bit more about Simon Mason, and, and then we can ask questions and, and, and find out more as we go. Okay, all right. Well, I, I think in no particular order, although you know maybe they should be in order. But what I am is is I'm a I'm a musician. I'm a writer. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I, uh, I'm a recovering addict uh, and alcoholic. So when I say addict and alcoholic, I spent nearly 20 years caught up in, in heroin addiction and alcoholism and crack and all that kind of stuff. And that's something that over, and I'm nearly 15 years clean now. So had you asked me 15 or 14 years ago, what was it? I'd have just said, I'm, a, I'm an ex-heroin addict and there wouldn't have been anything else to add to it because that's all I could sort of yeah. say about myself at that point because that's kind of all there was really to talk about. But I'm really grateful that over the years of, of being in recovery, I've been able to add some other things to that list of, of who I am or what I am or what I'm not. And, and I think the thing that I'm most, the thing that makes me happiest to say is that I'm a dad. My daughter's going to be 13 in a couple of weeks, you know, and she's never seen me have a drink and she's never seen me take drugs. And um, she's got her first David Barry T-shirt on that I bought her. And she's listening to to the Smiths a little bit, you know, and, uh, and I'm trying really hard to not be that middle-aged dad that goes, you will listen to Joy Division and you will like it. <laughs> you know? 
because I want to do that, but that's it. Just wouldn't doesn't work like that, does it? You have to kind of let people come to things in their own time. So, so I think being a dad is the thing that's made me happiest in life. And um, and and I got married again for this, you know for the second time eighteen months ago, and I've just moved to Margate with my missus, and um, life's good. You know, as I said to you just before we started, I'm sat here in, in my front room. And I can see the sea without turning this into some pirate thing, you know, <laughs> too much. But uh, I've been out on the beach earlier this morning. I've walked my dog. I'm seven days nicotine free. I stopped vaping seven days ago. So that's the first time really, I've, I don't know, for probably 40 years that I've had no nicotine or some substitute like that in my system. So I'm a bit nuts today, but it's getting better. That's kind of, well, that's what I would describe myself as right here, right now. So let's talk about High Town Pirates. So a band kind of you've always kind of been musically orientated from what I understand and getting you've always had songs and in getting clean and conversations with people led you to kind of form and lead the High Town Pirates. So so here's here's kind of what happened. The beginning of it all and I, you know, I was listening to Ian's podcast there, but this all started for me when just shy of my thirteenth birthday and, and I had a mate at school and his parents were dead cool. And they got us a pair of tickets to go and see the jam. Right, wow. so I'm, I'm 52, right? So I'm, I'm I'm 53 this year, right? So I, I saw the jam. I was I was 12 and a half years old, and we, my mate, like I said, my mate's parents got us the tickets, and everything changed. The world just what just changed completely forever, you know. Because unfortunately for me, the the, the previous couple of years had been um, really difficult for me. My father had died. He died when I was 11. Suddenly. We had a very small family anyway. My granddad, he died. He'd come to live with us. So it was me, my mum and my sister. I'd been put in a boarding school. All sorts of horrible, nasty stuff was happening, sexual abuse and bullying. It was just fucking rubbish, right? And uh, one of the older kids, and I, and I always talk about this, and, and I'm, I'm sure he listen to this because he's quite good with a podcast, Martin Johnson. In fact, maybe get him on one day. He was a sixth former. He was a few years older than me. And he came to my dorm room one night and he gave me this cassette, like a mix a mixtape c90 cassette and it had the ruts and the jam and the specials and the who and the pistols and joy division and the clash and all these kind of bands that were all quite angry <laughs> and i didn't realize quite how angry i was you know i was really upset and devastated i lost my old man and, and but i was angry you know because it's easier to be angry than it is to be sad oh. particularly in a boys boarding school you know what i mean so he gave me this cassette, and, and, and that was the beginning. And then a few months later, you know, a year or so later, I go see the jam, and um, and I found something in life that made that helped me make sense of life. So that's where it all started. People say, "Where did the band start?" It started then, yeah. Because yeah. I think some people kind of music for some people is something that goes on in the background whilst life happens, you know. <laughs> and for some of us, like life is what goes on in the background whilst music yeah. happens. Yeah. And I fall into that category, you know. So High Town Pirates, to fast forward to, to a few years ago, came about as a result of, of, of a few things happening um, in, in a sort of chronological order. I've been clean for quite a long time at this point and, um, and I got asked to go on tour with the Libertines to just kind of spend a bit of time with Peter and, you know, he was doing pretty well and, and just be the kind of guy that it doesn't use, you know, and, and be useful, be part of the crew. And... Um, so I kind of did that, and, and I hadn't played any of my own songs, and I didn't have a vast back catalogue. I had some, you know, from, from bands I've been in, and it never really happened. But being on tour with them, 
and watching all that stuff and being around all that and I hadn't been around all that for, for many, many, many years. Kind of it's hard to if you're if you can play anything, it's hard to not pick it up. You yeah, know what I mean? When you're on a tour bus and, and kind of join in. So I'm trying to give credit where it's due here to all these people because they were absolutely fundamentally part of how Hightown Pirates came into being. And the other person that was fundamental to Hightown Pirates, who in fact gave us our name, is a songwriter called Mick Head from the band Shack and the Pale Fountains and currently the Red Elastic Band, who I am fanboy. You know, Mick is, to me, one of the greatest songwriters this country's ever produced. If people know him and you mention his name, they just go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you come to And Ian and lots of other people, I'm sure. And Mick's a mate of mine, and I spent a bit of time with him as well up in Liverpool, and he came to stay with me for a month, a few years back. And if I just say he kind of left my house in a better state than how he'd arrived in, like, that's all I'll say about that. And he'd said to me one night, you know, um, you need to start playing guitar again. And I was like, oh, mate, I'm, I've just written a book and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And, and I'm going to tell you this part of the story it, it, because it's, it's, it's so important. So my, Tabitha, that's my daughter, she was being like seven at the time and, and she was staying with me that, that week. And uh, me and Mick were just chatting and uh, she comes through and you've got young girls right now. Like, she's got a teddy and she's rubbing her eyes going, Daddy, I can't sleep. Right? Which, she just wants to stay up with the grown-ups, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> so she comes in, she sits on my knee and she's got a teddy with her and uh, and Mick goes to the corner of the room and picks up my acoustic guitar that I had dust gathering on it. I hadn't picked it up for years, really, years. And he literally blows the dust off it and he just sits there and plays like for an hour. Like shack songs and and uh, I'm I am like you know as you might have gathered already I, I can it's not often I'm lost for words so I can talk like in forever <laughs> but I was speechless I've got one of my all-time heroes sat there playing comedy playing something like you play, you know play, whilst I'm rocking my daughter to sleep and, and I'm in tears and um, and then he put the guitar down and he went, you need to start playing guitar again. And I was like, that's kind of like an offer, you know, you can't really mm. refuse, isn't it? You know. And then a few months later, I saw the Libertines and on the tour bus and Peter's going, you know, you should play some songs. And, and then he offers a support slot on his solo tour that he did after that Libertines tour. And, and I get the support slot. So I've got to come up with some songs. And that's kind of how it all started. You know, it, uh, there was no plan. I hadn't planned to re-enter the musical fray so to speak but some things are just meant to be to quote a Mick Head song that's amazing that's an amazing story so from there you you you, you kind of support Pete Doherty you put your band together and then someone asks you off of what I read someone asks you you know heard heard song really like it where can I get it and you go actually you can't right and then that yeah. gives you the kind of desire then to take take it into a studio and then start putting some stuff out there so I I'd, I'd written this song called Jasper Today and I'd written it many, many, many years ago when I was still with Junkie and I wrote it actually, it was about Peter, it was about Pete Doherty because the, the lines are the new rock star struggles with those old rock star troubles and his new friends think he's okay. Ends up in the Ville, in Pentonville, DFs for his chills and DFs are like opiate substitute tablets they give people when they're trying to... Anyway, so I'd written a song about him. I played it one night, and, and after a show on tour with Peter, someone said, I want to hear that song, as you've just pointed out. And I said, well, you'll have to come around my house because it's not recorded. <laughs> and then they gave me their number, we exchanged numbers, and they called me um, I don't know, a month later, and they said, look, I'm in a position to help you make an album financially, and, uh, and I want to do that. And 
and how much money do you need, which is the, the ultimate how long is a piece of string yeah, question, yeah. really. So my head's gone, oh, we could go to fucking Muscle Shoals in America and we'll get them here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's my kind of yeah. initial yeah. thing. And then the sort of reality, anyway, it's a long story, but, but this person, she'd read my book, she'd read Too High Too Far Too Soon. She knew why I was part of the Libertines' entourage at that point, why I was Pete, with Peter, why I'd been with Nick Head. And she said, look, you help other people, so I, I want to help you. And, and I, I, made, I literally made a few phone calls and I rung up some people. And I'm like, look, do you want to rehearse and do an album? And, uh, and I got an old friend of mine, he's my oldest mate, Matty Purslow, and he was like, yeah, I'll do it. And we played together in a band back in the day when I was a junkie and I'd fucked that up. And I got the drummer, Johnny, same deal. We, we, we played in this band, Monkey Man, together. I got my mate Dave. And, and we had five rehearsals. And then we went to a studio in Henley, Doghouse Studios, and we recorded an album in six days. We recorded Try and Home in kind of six days. And one of the things I think that, that continues to amaze me about life is that kind of synchronicity when you've kind of got your own agenda out of the way and you're just in this flow of what's supposed to happen. You know, this kind of, it feels like this kind of benevolence of the universe. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're not clawing, climbing over, clambering over people and, and fucking people off to get what you want. You're just kind of like going with the flow and the flow takes you to this place where you you find yourself standing in this studio with people you've known since you were a kid um, who've seen you at your very worst, yeah. you know, sticking needles in your fucking neck. And you're now clean and you're going digging up songs that you wrote together a few years ago and you've got someone producing it and it's all going, oh my God, this is amazing. You couldn't make it up. I know, and that album and that six days worth of recording turns out to be your debut, right? So that album turns out to be the Dry and High album. That's right, yeah. Fantastic album, can I just say. Some great tracks. When when Ian was on the podcast and he recommended you, he said it, it sounds, he said, if you like very early Oasis, then you'll love Hightown Pirates, which I think is a fair comparison but I also think there's lots of other influences you can hear throughout the album obviously you've got the guitar sounds you've got lots of horn sections which is amazing I love the female backing vocalist yeah. when she's backing you I think that's a great sound and well, you know you can yeah. hear you can hear bits of the jam we've talked about you can hear bits of the who we've talked about I actually hear quite a lot of cast at points what? like the best bits of cast because okay. I was a massive cast fan when I was a teenager I can hear cast bits here and there come out of it how would you describe the sounding well, here's the thing, right? So the, when I chose to, to put a horn section on the album, and we went to Liverpool to do that. So, you know, obviously you can tell by my accent, I'm a Liverpool fan. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I spend a lot of time at Anfield. I'm very lucky to be able to go and watch them when you're allowed to go and watch them. Anyway, so I went to I went to a studio belongs to a friend of mine, Steve Powell. And Steve Powell's produced Mick Head's uh, Magical World of the Strands album. And, and a whole, I think he's worked with John Power. He's worked with everybody in Liverpool over the years. And he said, look, if you put this horn section onto this record, you're creating a sort of signature sound. And, you know, it will cost you money in the future if you want to. I said, look, that's, it just has to be. I, we just have, we've got to do it. Yeah. It's, it's, it just it's, it, it lends itself to it. And the, the obvious kind of thing people say is, oh, you know, because you've kind of got these kind of modish tendencies, then you must be a fan of Northern Soul. And I am, of course, any right-minded individual would be, right? But actually, the reality is, is, is that, as we were discussing before the show here, I'm of Jewish ancestry, and my father, were he alive now, would be nearly 100. My dad was a pilot in World War Two, so he was like a Jewish kid flying for the RAF during the war, dropping bombs on Nazis, which is living the dream, right? You know, that's as good as it gets. 
so he had a love for for glenn miller and benny goodman and that kind of big band thing and that they're the the only records that i remember as a young child hearing in my house my mum didn't really listen to music she'd have the radio on she was like music's in the background kind of yeah. thing you know? whereas my dad loved that big sound of brass and and, and it was only really kind of over the last few years that I kind of thought that's where I got it from, really. The big band sound. And Hightown Pirates has a, a big band sound. You can't escape it. It's, it's a wall of sound. It's huge. So those influences that, that you've mentioned, that other people mentioned, I mean, you know, most people, generally speaking, you know, if they're making their debut album, will probably do it when they're sort of, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22. I didn't make my debut album until I was 48. So I've had, you know, you've got all your life to write yeah. your first album, right? <laughs> so I had a lot to suck up and a lot to put in. And it's all in there. It's definitely all in there. And when we get to sort of my fantasy festival lineup later, maybe that will explain it a bit more. But yeah, Great stuff. And so the first album comes out, it gets four stars in Q Magazine and it gets yeah. some pretty decent critical reviews. How? So what happens from there? You go out and you tour it. No, well, no, we didn't go out and tour it. <laughs> so here's the here's the difficult thing, right? It, and um, it's one of the most challenging things that I've actually found in my sobriety to, it, it is is to m- try and manage your expectations in life. Right? Mm. It's difficult. You you kind of if we were all better at it, the world would be a much happier place. I think you know, without sort of turning into some political rant. But we cut this album. And I remember listening to it once it came back to be mastered, you know, for the first time and literally crying with joy, thinking this is everything that I love about music, right? And and that that should be enough. If you're the songwriter, it's like, look, I've, I've, yeah. I've done this. It makes sense to me. It's everything that I love. It's the sound of redemption. There's, there's a part during the track just for today and there's a bit of a drop down and then and then the horns come in and Shona just starts singing she goes like whoa whoa yeah everything slams in right and it's like the sound of redemption is how I describe the sound of High Town Pirates and and, and I heard it and I thought I've, I've done it that's that should be enough but of course I want other people to hear it and I want to put this band together and go out and play it to people but as my friend Steve Powell had said that day in the studio, if you add a horn section to a band, mm. it's going to cost you money because you go from being a four or five piece to an eight piece or a nine piece. And then you throw in some soulful kind of gospel singers and a, and a flute player and some organ. You've got a 10 piece band. Yeah. And to put a 10 piece band on stage, and I pay everybody, right? I believe that that's important. Now, it, that's an insane thing to choose to do, given that we have no audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you're, if, you know, if you've got an audience and you can play in front of a couple of thousand people, you can pay ten people. So we put this album out, as you said, Q gave it amazing reviews. People who have spent their entire life listening to music, people like Ian Salmon and other people who care about me enough to not blow smoke up my ass yeah. and to tell me the truth. I've gone, that's a fucking great album. And here's what happened to me. We took it. I had a friend who's been in the industry for a long time and he took this record before we released it, the mastered version, to two record labels. I won't say they were because it kind of doesn't matter, but they're re- record labels that I respected. Both the people who run these record labels said this. They said, that's a fucking great album, but we can't do anything with it because he's too old. Wow. So you imagine going for a job interview, right? In any walk of life. And you sit there and they go, you tick every box for this. You're qualified. You're overqualified for this job. 
but we're not going to give it to you because you're too old or you're too black or you're too gay or you're too white or you're too whatever, right? But that is the music industry. And people shout about, quite rightly, about misogyny and homophobia, but no one talks about ageism. And the reason why Hightown Pirates have not taken off is because the gatekeepers of the industry cannot get their head around the fact that some middle-aged bloke can sort of turn up <laughs> out of nowhere and make not one, but two, and an EP, albums of music that in a fair world, and we don't live in a fair world, unfortunately, should be playing big stages in front of thousands and thousands of people. They just cannot get their head around it, so they won't let it happen. I've sent everything we've done to BBC Introducing to the... You just get the same email, thanks, but no thanks. That's crazy, isn't it? It's absolutely madness. Told you I was mad today because I haven't spoken <laughs> for seven days. But, but so we, we, we're trying to, you know, because the story doesn't fit at the, the kind of popular narrative. Yeah. And look, I totally understand that, you know, to develop an artist in the olden days takes time, years in some cases. And I accept that because... A lot of artists need developing, right? You take the raw talent and you, you know, you get a producer and you, you develop it. I mean, David Bowie's first five years of his career, I'm not comparing myself to him for one second, yeah. by the way, but was a lot of failure, a lot of nurturing, a lot of blind yeah. alleyways. And then all of a sudden it started to happen. But we live in an age now where you can drop a song, I hate that expression, <laughs> drop a track or whatever, onto social media and you can put it out into the world instantly. And it, it's it's one of the, I suppose, it, it, if it is a benefit of, of streaming platforms that, you know, Ian Salmon could say to you two weeks ago, you go listen to it, that's great, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I, I feel a, a sense of frustration, but you know what, my solution to that frustration is just to keep writing more songs. Great way to, to look at it. And then you did write more songs from the first album, and then that leads to your second album, All of the Above. Well, almost. There was an EP in between those two things. Um, we were fortunate enough after after the first album didn't really happen commercially. We managed to. I, I, I got a conversation going with Youth, you know, from Kim yeah. Joke, the producer, and he. I told him a little bit about the sort of backstory behind the band, and you know, he he gave us a really, really, really good mates rates to go in and, and do a few days with him, and we recorded an EP with Youth, a four track EP which has never officially been released apart from on a white label because of management issues. And I sat, anyways, like the, the record industry. <laughs> we had management, I sacked them, they wouldn't let me put the record out. I had the record on my hard drive, I pressed it up onto some white labels. It's as good as anything we've done. Right. It's an amazing four-track EP. I'll send you a link to it. Yeah, please do. Um, and it was another thing, you know, when I talk about trying to measure your expectations, like we had this EP, we had Youth's name. I mean, he's produced Paul McCartney. Yeah. Pink Floyd, yeah. but you know, and I was thinking, surely with his name, people will open the email that I sent to them with the record and listen to it. Didn't happen, didn't happen. Nobody listened to it. I sent it out to uh, 75, I think it was, various labels and pluggers and promoters, and I used this platform called Promo Jukebox, which you can upload your track on, and then you send it via an email, and it tells you whether the recipient has opened the email, oh. and then it tells you whether they listened to the song nobody did and i started to think to myself fucking hell what have you got to do yeah <laughs> and, and what have you you know so um it's difficult yeah it sounds it it sounds it but you're still going obviously you released the second album all of the above and then there's yeah. a new track on spotify that you released i think in february we've released two tracks this yeah. year already so we released a track called jet girl 
yeah. on January the 1st, which is as good as anything we've, we've done, <laughs> easily. It's an amazing song. And again, anyone that's heard it, there's, there's, here's the thing, Steve. Either people are being really polite if they don't like it and not saying anything, which <laughs> I don't actually think is how people are these days. They'll just fucking tell you, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> They'll just start trolling you on social media and go, you're shit, mate. You know? It's like when you're at the football, you're shit, and you know you are. There's no discerning voices. There's no, sorry, there's no, there's no negative voices yeah. to anything we put out. People come to it and they're like, they say the same thing as you. They're like, how come they're not playing big stages? So we put Jet Girl out, Jeremy, but first, and, and I put this, you know, Hightown Pirates on Twitter, I put this kind of fairly self-piteous tweet out going, look, we've had like 50 streams in a week. We've just released a song during lockdown that's got, you know, that's just huge sounding with a, again, with a horn section and a, and um, maybe self-pity is the way forward because it, it got a bit of traction and, and a load of other people jumped on it and started going, oh, this is amazing. And it picked up and it ended up getting, you know, <laughs> a couple of thousand plays, which for me is a result yeah. as, you know, and then we released another track on Valentine's Day called The Boy in the Doorway, which is very different from anything else we've released. It's got a string section all the way through yeah. it, you know, real strings that, and um, done, done by the producer I worked with, Tim Hamper. And it's another brilliant song. That is a brilliant and, song. That, that was the first song I had heard, because obviously that's your most recent release, so that's the first yeah. thing that comes up. And yeah. I, I heard the, in, the intro and it was like acoustic and your vocal comes in and it's suddenly out of nowhere, just this woomph. And like you said, the string section, and I was, because I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that, and I was like, this is amazing, and I, and I got a few mates groups on WhatsApp, and I sent them the link straight away, and went, boys, listen to this, because you, you won't see what's coming, because there was no preconceived notion. Yeah, and and it and nothing happens, you know what I mean? It gets like a thousand streams, and and you just think, what do you do? You know, what do you do? And and look, it's not a competition, right? But I had this conversation with a mate of mine last night and, and because I've got too much time in my hands, I, I kind of had a look at what was who won some Grammys the other night, yeah? So I, I, I'm aware of the names of people that win. You know, I know who by name Weekend is and obviously I kind of know who Harry Styles is and, and all these people. And they get awarded Grammys because they've got like a billion streams on mm. Spotify. And that's why they get a Grammy. It's got nothing to do with the songwriting because the songs are fucking rubbish. I'm sorry, but they are, you know. That's the world we live in, you know. It, it, it's, you know, I was listening, again, listening back to Ian's podcast, right? I really try hard to to listen to contemporary artists. I do try. I'm not, like, so. I'm not the middle-aged man with his fingers in his ears going, no, it's all shit. You know, I've heard it all before. But guess what? I have. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of it before, and, and and I'm not easily impressed. And why should I be? You know, because I've lived a little bit. And and I generally feel that here's a question, right? The, the Drake, I think I looked at the other day, has got the top number one, two, and three in the Billboard Hot 100 in America, right? At the moment, I wonder how many of those people that have played his songs on Spotify, if they had to save up their pocket money and wait outside a record shop at nine o'clock in the morning on, on a Monday in the pissing rain, like we used to when we were kids to get our, our, our artist's new single. I wonder how many plays you'd get if people got to do that. I don't think you'd have 25 billion. <laughs> no, that's a valid point. I think we are in an age where people have accepted that the convenience of how they get music. It's like, because you don't have to invest anything in it, you'll settle for rubbish or you'll settle for stuff that is polished and it's got no edge to it and it's so disposable it doesn't mean anything 
and I, I'm not of that generation. And, and you know, now I do sound like a bit of middle-aged man. Sorry, but to me, like I said to you, you know, music saved my life, and I, and I choose my words carefully. There, it actually saved my life when I was in that boarding school, getting abused, sexually abused, and bullied and beaten. You know, having lost my dad and my granddad. And I had a, a, an earpiece and I had a cassette with, with music on it. It fucking saved my life. I don't think I would have survived without it, you know. So all that passion and energy and belief goes into... And then throw in 20 years of heroin addiction and all the fucking carnage that went with that and all my friends that have died. I could have gone to 20 funerals in the last 10 years of mates of mine that didn't survive their addiction, right? And the reason we made... Well, I chose to make all of the above because prior to that, I, I thought this is going nowhere. You know, I fund this, right? No one's given me money. You know, it is like I have to go out and find the money to pay musicians to record, to press up the vinyl. I book the gigs. I sort out the artwork. I book the rehearsals, blah, 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 blah. blah. That's my choice. I choose to do that. And we got nowhere and the EP with youth hadn't been released. And I just thought, what's the fucking point? And then three of my best mates died within 18 months of each other. They relapsed and they went back to addiction using and they died. And I thought, I need to make a record. And they were musicians, you know, two of them were, were incredibly gifted guitar players and the other one was just a music obsessive nut. And I thought to myself, I want to make a record with a group of musicians who are all completely sober. And I want to show people I want to show other musicians, um, not tell them, show them that actually you can stop taking drugs if you need to stop taking them or if you need to stop drinking. Because I'm not anti-drink or drugs. If you can get away with it, fucking good luck to you, you know. But if you need to stop, if it's causing huge problems in your life, physical, whatever, a lot of people think at that point, then you creatively, you're going to dry up. Because like you and like probably a lot of people who ever listens to this podcast, most of my records that I grew up with were made by people off their tits on drugs at some point. Yeah. So all of the above is my response to that because it was made entirely by people who were completely stone cold sober. Everybody. The studio we went in is run by two people who are sober for like 12, 13 years. Every musician has been sober. Some of them not for a long, 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 long time. Some of them for 20 years. But they were clean and sober. And it's my response to losing my friends and, and, you know, the next Amy Winehouse or the next whoever it is that kind of we lose, these artists. And the record company dance all over their fucking graves, but they do very little Mm. to support people. And that's what High Town Pirates is now about. That's what it's become. It's It's a collective of sober, clean musicians. And that's why I'm so fucking determined to keep it going, because it it needs to be here. That's awesome. That's awesome. That all of the above. You weren't expecting that, were you? No, mate. Joe, I could listen to you all day, and I'm I'm so glad you're on the podcast. And I've I listened to that all of the above album. Some great tracks on there. The one that struck with me, you know, I I thought different drums was an absolutely epic tune. Like that was that. There's some songs that you need time to get into and absorb. Different drums straight away. I was like, bloody hell. I was like, that's amazing. And I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't listened, but a lovely outro as well that tips a hat um, yeah. to someone who may or may not be mentioned later. I don't know which way you're going to go with it. And also... tips, tips more than a hat. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> he might sue me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he listens, so you don't need to worry about no. it. Um, yeah. And yeah, the Battle of the Hightown Pirates, again, two big, two, the way that album ends, those two closing tracks, it, yeah, it, it's, it's awesome. And I think you mentioned it earlier, like about the point 
where it all comes together and kind of like in an epiphany. I had that with Chasing Rainbow as a final track on, on the first album. Again, the last like minute of that. So I, all I can do is tip my hat to you and say, keep going with it. It's, am, it's amazing. You know, who knows what will happen in the future. If I found it and I spread it to 10 friends and they find it and spread it to 10 friends, you, you never know what will happen with it. Do you know what I mean? But you know what I want to do, Steve? I want to, I thought about this the other day, is, is a, let's have a national turn people into pirates day. On Twitter, love it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, no one's going to do this for me or, or us because I, I, I just once people get into our music, like that's it. You're part of the crew now, whether you fucking like it or not, and, and you clearly do like it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking. So I just thought, well, then it's a we thing, right? So if I chose a day in, in a, you know, maybe in the build-up to the vinyl release of, of the album in June, where we have right national turn people into pirates day. And we all have to tag 10 of our mates that we think will like the music on Twitter or whatever social media and see if we can actually turn a, a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand people onto the music of Hightown Pirates. Great idea. Great idea. Just get a hashtag, get cracking yeah. with it. Yeah, it definitely works. And, you know, all, yeah. all it needs is someone like a Tim Burgess to, to stumble upon it or someone like that and then you're in a different different zone. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's ignored me so far. I've, I kind of stopped bothering him for a little while. Do you know, the, the, the sad thing is, right, I know that t- I don't know him, right? I mean, our, our paths sort of ships in the night back in the day, maybe. But I know he's been sober for a long time, and I think he'd get it. Yeah. I think if someone actually went, look, Tim, maybe have a listen to the, the story behind this and what, the, you know, I think he'd get it. I think he'd like the music. Yeah. But I don't know anyone who can, anyway, yeah. Well, let's, well, let's see. Great idea about the Twitter day. That's definitely something. Yeah. Just get a hashtag together, and we can do that. Yeah. So... I guess let's talk about music that means a lot to you. So you said you got that mixtape and that, and then you see the jam and that opens up a yeah. whole new world. Do you remember what the first yeah. record was that you ever bought like with your own money? The first record I bought with my own money was um, was actually Setting Suns by the jam. I remember going to, you know, the, it's like I just mentioned, you know, the, the excitement of, of having enough pocket money to buy an album. And I mean, I must have been like 10 you know, I, I was listening to the jam before I went to see them. I had a mate who had an older brother. That's how it works. You know what I mean? You kind of, yeah. he was a few years older and he got into them. So, you know, we got into them. And uh, I, I, I can remember walking into to the, the market where, where the record shop was in, in Western Supermare where I was born and seeing some older kids, you know, and just being a little bit like, oh my God, but, you know, they, they were probably 14 or 15, but I was 11 or 10. And getting this record, and my mum, I tell you, I, I was 11, my dad had died. So it was Christmas of 1979, and he died, my dad died in November of 79, and my mum, bless her, and, you know, it was like the worst Christmas ever. Mm. You know, it was like a, five weeks after my dad had died, but she bought she bought me a record player, one of those kind of like mono with a lid on it, and you put the arm across, and, and, um, and I remember playing this record and, and just kind of feeling all right for a bit, you know, kind of there was there was an anger to it. So that was the first record I bought. The most recent record, just not that you've asked me, because I'm buying vinyl quite regularly at the moment. I haven't bought anything on vinyl that wasn't released at least 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously, it's making a massive comeback. Obviously, I work at HMV, so I know about the vinyl kind of resurgence. What? So what? what, what was it? I actually bought Rock and Roll Animal by Lou Reed on 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 vinyl, the reissue on vinyl, because um, it, it played a significant part in my life, that album, when I first heard it. Um, and uh, I haven't had it on vinyl since, I don't know, the 80s probably. And, um, and I, I bought it on Discogs the other day. 
and realised I didn't like it as much as I thought. <laughs> Genius. Genius. So, like I said at the top of the pod, it's all about you collating your fantasy festival. Through reading about you, I know you've been to festivals. Glastonbury always comes up when I read about you in terms of Glastonbury. Watch, yeah. You watching the Water Boys and then you with Bez on um, yeah. a bike yeah. backstage. Yeah. And obviously there's stories about Nebworth that isn't a festival as such, but you know, I yeah. was there on that Saturday and that feels like a very, that could have been a fantastical in itself. Some of those yeah. acts at the time. So you big festival goer, you know, as a, so of late, um, obviously think that's already last year. I've kind of started dipping my toe in. In fact, I took Tabitha to a, um, a festival when she was eight. We went to a festival, camp festival, which is like for parents and kids. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The weather was great. And then I went to Lake Fest a couple of years ago. And I've sort of been back to Reading once, which isn't really a festival, is it? It's a bunch of teenagers covered in glitter <laughs> wandering around a fucking car park in Reading. <laughs> I, I'd like to go back to more, you know, because as you've already said, you know, Glastonbury was, was on my calendar every year for a long time. First of all, in 1986, where, as you correctly pointed out, I saw the Waterboys, and, and they are actually on my sort of fantasy festival list, um, which we'll, I guess we'll get to we'll very shortly. Yeah. I like, you know, it's the tribal aspect of all this, right? It's like I like going to, you know, the reason I love going to watch football is because it's it's that connection, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you, 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 we're, we're creatures of habit. Most people probably go to the same pub before the game and sit in the same corner or stand at the same point at the bar with their mates. And, and if they're lucky enough to have a season ticket, you know, they sit in the same seat. Yeah, yeah. All of that's been ripped away in the last year. You know, no football, no live gigs. For people like me, no alcohol, no drugs. <laughs> it's like, fucking hell. But we're 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 getting to the point where that's going to change again, right? So, um, am I allowed to put High Town Pirates on my fantasy festival list? Of course you are. Of course you are. Well, then, that's the fucking first name there. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we come on to fantasy festival, I'll just talk to you about gigs. So, you mentioned seeing the jam, and you said that was an epiphany yeah. moment. Are there any other gigs that, that you look back on and you go, blind, like, that was just incredible? And you can also speak from a High Town Pirates perspective that you've played and you've walked away from and you've gone, bloody hell, we have absolutely smashed that one out of the park. Well, so, uh, I mean, the jam and then, you know, I saw the Smiths when you know, I had, a, you know, one of those kind of sit-up moments on top of the box when, when they were on for the first time. You know, um, this charming man just sort of, I think I was more intrigued by Johnny Marr than I was Morrissey. I don't know why, because I'm not really a guitar player. I mean, I am. I, I can play guitar, yeah. but but I, I just thought Johnny Marr just looked so cool, so cool, you know. And uh, and I completely became besotted with the Smiths, and I saw them quite a few times. And I remember seeing them at Bristol Colston Hall and, and being right at the front. And it was this kind of it was it was almost like um, there's something quite homoerotic about it because it was a lot of blokes. You know, sweaty blokes just worshipping Morrissey, yeah. and you know, I, I was living in in Western Supermare, which isn't really the gay capital of the world. You know, it, quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, I think it was a real education. You know, because I was re- I was like fourteen, I think. You know, to to sort of see that just because I was born in this town that was kind of really racist, actually. You know, seaside town, very inward looking in its in its you know no ambition shall we say let's be polite about it and and then to sort of be sort of introduced to the smiths and the idea that there was this kind of different kind of masculinity that men could be 
express their feelings and, and not get their fucking head kicked in, you know, like you would do in Western Superman, if you, all that kind of stuff. Quite a pivotal moment for me, you know, that, as well as the fucking music, obviously, you know. <laughs> and I've just said all that, and, and, and it's not a conclusion that I'd ever sort of really reached until I just said it. That's the beauty of the podcast. That's the beauty. It make, when you talk about it out loud and you start reflecting on it, you yeah, I'm, I'm I mean, it wasn't like there were blokes noshing each other off, and <laughs> quite, really quite like that. But, but there was, there was, there was definitely this kind of sweaty kind of, you know, and it was mainly fellas that were all down the front just trying to, you no. Know, so, so the Smiths, and then a couple of years later, uh, again in Bristol, I saw the Stone Roses. Before, I think it was the tour for, for the first album, or before the first album, maybe around that time, and it was a half-empty room. It wasn't that busy. Wow. And I tried to convince my mates to come. By this point in my life, I was taking quite a lot of drugs, I should point out. So my recollection of Ian Brown singing might be slightly embossed <laughs> by a lot of ecstasy. <laughs> and I don't want to be mean about him. In fact, I won't be mean about him. But but so I suppose that chronologically, so we've gone from... Um, you know when I feel old, right? The days when I'm like, fucking old, I'm 52, right? I've seen the Jam and the Smiths and the Roses, you know, all of them kind of in their prime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, in fact, before they became huge, huge, huge. So, you know what, being old's all right sometimes, you know, because I've, I've, I've had those experiences. And I walked away from that Roses gig and I was in my first band back in Western Supermare and I walked, in, we were, you know, I'd, I'd rented this kind of abandoned building. It was an old snooker hall and we put this PA in there and I was trying to figure out how to sing and, you know, first band kind of thing. And um, the guys turned up for rehearsal the next day and, and I'd gone out and bought the album, like, you know, that morning and went, listen to this. And the bass player went, yeah, I'm not really having that, mate. I'm, I've kind of, I think we should go down a Fleetwood Mac kind of route. And that was the end of the band. So, I mean, that was... <laughs> this band, if a bass player can't get into it within the first minute of that album, then you know he's not the bass player for you, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so... Um, so, yeah, the, the Stone Roses were responsible for, you know, a musical awakening and also the, the end of my first band. So that's fine. That's a good trade-off. Who else would I say? Uh, the, the Waterboys at Glastonbury in 86. I can't not talk about that show. You can listen to that gig on YouTube. Right? It was actually released. It was recorded by BBC. Uh, it was like an in-concert series. They used to call it back in the day. So it's a really good, high-quality... I, I urge anyone... Waterboys Glastonbury 86 go and listen to it it is absolutely phenomenal so that, that's the era of, of This Is The Sea but but they dip into Because The Night by Patti Smith they, they kind of disappear into um, a bit of Iggy Pop they, it, it just takes you and pulls you emotionally and, and into all these kind of places and it is unquestionably the blueprint for Hightown Pirates that particular gig awesome that's so, right High praise YouTube, indeed. Glastonbury 86, listen to it. It will make your hair stand on, if you've got any, stand on, up on you, on you. It's just fucking phenomenal because there is so there is so much energy in it and, and soul and, and just visceral kind of guitars and, and, you know, and a fiddle. Fucking hell. You know, and I, I think at that line up there, the guy called Dave Ruffy playing drums and he'd been in the ruts. He's an amazing drummer and he drives the whole thing. So that was a phenomenal gig. And then, you know, I saw Oasis at the Water Rats. Unbelievable. In, in 1993. So you've been lucky. You've seen, I guess you've seen the right bands at the right time, in the right venues as well, by the sounds of it. Well, I, that that Oasis gig, I mean, just for people who probably don't know, the Water Rats holds 200 people at a push. 
you know, and it was it was sold out. It was not this was nineteen ninety three. It was their first gig in London, I think. And um and I was there in my capacity as the guy that helped people stay up all night. Promoter <laughs> 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 would run me. They said I've got this band from Manchester and they, they, they require your services. Anyway, I just remember stood there thinking, This is it. This is this is our kind of um this is our Beatles, our stones, our everything, you know, and, and I mean, that's a bold statement, and I've got to say it, you know, I'm not a big Oasis fan these days. You know, I, I love that first album. Yeah. I think it's phenomenal, first album, and I like bits of the second one. I haven't listened to anything else by them for 20 years. I mean, you get it on the radio. I think Liam Gallagher's solo stuff is fucking rubbish. I cannot listen to it. It's like someone... Someone write him a good song because he's just given this slop to sing over <laughs> and his voice is still a beautiful thing. Yeah. But, you know, two kids to school, clean the pool, went down easy like a glass of wine, fuck off. Do you know what I mean? Fucking... I know they've never been known for their lyrical genius, but it's just it's just barrel scrap scraping and I just wish someone would give him some decent songs to sing. Sorry, there you go. I've just lost the support slot we were going to have with Oasis before that. <laughs> Fair shout. Amazing time to see him. Amazing time to see him. That kind of, that was the story and definitely maybe open up completely new pathways to my musical journey yeah. as well as everyone who was 15 at the time when that, when that came out. And it out. goes back to that thing about you've got your whole life to write your first album because Noel was 27 when he wrote that, right? Or 26. So he'd sucked all that stuff up and there's his influences and he's put his own spin on it and it just hits you right between the eyes and you just like, whoa, you know, yeah. and uh, magic, magic stuff. Great stuff. Great stuff. Some amazing examples there. So like I said, this is all about you now collating your fantasy festival. So for anyone who hasn't listened before, Simon gets to collate his fantasy festival. He can choose any five acts from any time period across any genre, uh, one of whom must play one of their studio albums in full, and plus he gets to get any song for the end of his fantasy festival that all five acts can perform together. That can be his encore. So very simple. Five acts take five time slot so in episode 47 i had mr del gentilini on the podcast and he named his fantastical the legion of gloom fantastical in his opening slot he had elliot smith who made his fantastical debut in his super second slot he had a band called fair to midland who i hadn't heard of and i'll check those boys out um sooner rather than later in his midway madness slot he had catatonia with a k very important the catatonia with a k playing their Viva Emptiness album and in his pre-headline slot he had Sigur Ross, um, who he said are just an amazing live act and in his headline slot Del picked The Cure who made their first fantastical appearance after 47 episodes and for his encore he had all five playing Schools Out so he picked a very jolly song for a very gloomy fantastical but a great lineup, nevertheless all new acts to the fantastical so Ian you get to pick any five acts like we said before we do that we have to name your fantastical and give it a venue. So what, so what are you going to name your fantasy festival? I'm going to name it Redemption in a Tent. Like it. And I, I guess that's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose it is. But maybe other people have, have experienced a different kind of redemption in a tent at a festival. But yeah, Redemption in a Tent, I think, is... Uh, I like the idea of... of those huge marquees that they have at festivals, you know, I, I like that idea more than I like the main stage thing. Mm. I like having a kind of roof over it. And, you know, I think the perfect amount of people to have at a gig is 5,000 in a tent. I saw Oasis, or I've actually introduced Oasis when they played at Tea in the Park for the first time in 94, I think it was. Um, and they were playing 
on a, in, in the in the tent, and there was five thousand people allowed in the tent. I suspect there was probably eight thousand people in there. There were people climbing up the poles. It was the most phenomenal thing I've ever experienced. You know, uh, uh, and I just thought that's and Brixton Academy is my favourite venue, yeah. and that holds four thousand people. I think so. I think that's the right number for me personally. Yeah. Anyway, redemption in a tent. Great title. I don't want to keep going back to Oasis, but I did read in Ian Salmon's kind of write-up that you've done a hand claps on whatever. Is that true? I did that. that is true, yeah. I, I am the hand claps on whatever, yeah. How did that... Was it, were you just in the studio and they went, do you want to do the hand claps? And you were like, yeah, right. We were... Uh, I mean, look, you know, I was hanging around. I was their right. spiritual guy, guy yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the time. Um, and, it was, and we were in Maison Rouge Studios, which was in Fulham, Chelsea. Yeah, and, and myself and Noel and, and Liam and I forgot who else was there. I think Brian Cannon was there. And Noel was like, we've got to put hand claps on this tune. And um, which is, normally is a fairly standard, straightforward procedure. But when you've got five people that have all been, um, how can I put it, sampling, you know, <laughs> the celebrity sherbet, trying to get five people that have been doing that for like four hours to clap in time at the same time wasn't as straightforward as, as perhaps people might have wanted it to be. Um, but we pulled it off, and, and, and so I ended up being the hand claps on whatever, yeah. Amazing. No more Oasis talk. We'll leave the Oasis out of it now. So we've got Redemption in the tent. You can take it anywhere you like. We can go back to Western Supermare, although I probably think we won't. You can go back to Brixton Academy. We can go anywhere in the world. We can go to Tea in the Park. Where are you going to take us for your Redemption in the tent festival? Well, we're going we're gonna to have to go to Glastonbury. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Next door to Michael Evis's farm. Awesome. So we got Redemption in a Tent. We're going to Glastonbury for it. Before we talk about the five acts who have made your fantasy festival, are there any acts that you want to mention who who haven't made the five but you think are a pivotal pivotal band to you or a pivotal act for you? Um, i tell you who's a band that I really, I'm looking, I'm rooting for at the moment um, to do well because I think they're really clever. They're, they're called Children of the State. And they're fronted by a young man called John McCulloch, who, and I've been aware of John since he was 15. And they're based out of sort of Sheffield, Yorkshire. Look them up, Children of the State. They're, they're trying to do things that are interesting. And he's a great songwriter. And I also have to give a mention, because I'll get a punch in the back of the head if I don't, to, to my stepson. I'll do it. <laughs> my, wife's, my wife's son. So he's, an, he's called Laurie McMahon. And he's got a band together. He's 21, just turned 21. He's down in Brighton. And they're called Pickpockets. And they've got a couple of things up on, on Spotify. And there's, if there's one song I could direct people to by Pickpockets, it's called Monolith. Um, I produced it, right? but that's not really the point. The point is it is an amazing fucking song. And this kid, there's a line in it called Go and dig, go and find, go and dig gold in your own rubble. Right? Now, he wrote that lyric when he was 19. When I was 19, I was in a shed with a copy of Razzle and a spliff <laughs> trying to figure out fucking what's going on. I wasn't writing line lyrics like that. So pickpockets would be on my, you know, um, festival lineup had I not gone for some slightly more obvious things and also Children of the State. So they're, they're on the subs bench. Great stuff. We can we can get the links out there. We can definitely get the links yeah. out there for those tracks within the episode description. So those were acts who haven't made it in. So let's go through the acts who have been. So Redemption in a Tent, Glastonbury's Heaving, it's two o'clock, time for your opening act. So Simon, who's so going to take act, the opening act? The opening act is going to be I Can Tina Turner, circa 1970. Great choice. So Tina Turner has been on one fantastical as a solo artist, but now we're having Ike join us. So why why Ike and Tina for you? What will they bring 
for you? Well, go and look at the YouTube version of them doing Proud Mary in, in 1970 or 69, I think it was. I think it was on that German programme um, whose name I've forgotten, Beat Club. It's just everything. It's just uh, the she is at that point, I think, like the most sexually fucking um, powerful woman on the planet. You know, there's just something so raw about it. The song, obviously, it's a Creedence song, but they, they take it and they, they turn it into their own thing. Ike Turner was a bit of a cop. We all know that, you know, not a very pleasant guy in the same way as, you know, people like Phil Spencer's not a very pleasant guy. You have to separate the art from the artist and the behaviour, but... I just think, and they have the eye cats, and the band is so tight, and I defy anyone to not watch them do Proud Mary and not want to get up and dance and just get lost in it and just go, wow, you know. No no Tina Turner, no Beyonce, you know what I mean? It's as simple yeah. as that. I always say that. Whenever I see Beyonce on a TV screen, I always say to whoever's around, whether it's my five-year-old daughter who looks at me like I'm a nutter, or like my wife yeah. who just says, shut up, you, keep, you always say this when you see Beyonce, and I'm like, she's yeah. just trying yeah. to be Tina. Yeah, yeah. So, you know... No surprise then, or maybe we'll be a surprise. So they're on my list. Um, I would open with them. And then I'd like to put the small faces on after them. Great choice. So the small faces have never really been spoken about much on this podcast. I'm glad you've mentioned them. So, again, why why the small faces? Because, because, because they're the small, <laughs> because Steve Barrett's voice, because his songwriting, because All or Nothing because Son of a Baker, because the list is endless, Ichiku Park, so, you know, because they, I think they were the first band to really, of their own kind of volition, look the part and sound. They, no one dressed the small faces, they dressed themselves, you know. They were the real deal. You know, the Who were, were turned into mods, really, by their management. You know, the Beatles were, again, you know, told, wear this, wear that. Small faces turned up and that's what they were. <laughs> The genuine article and Steve Marriott, you know, I was either going to be them or the Kinks, and depending on what, you know. But so, so the small faces get the nod because they're not talked about often enough. Whereas, you know, and neither are the Kinks actually, to be fair. But but I just think the small faces, yeah, they they'd be great. Steve Marriott would probably try and get off with Tina Turner <laughs> backstage. Ike would that there'd be a fight. It would be great. Great stuff, and you. I think we've mentioned about how you go and find a band and then, you know, you hear those influences and you, you end up going back further. I went through a massive ocean colour scene phase in the mid to late 90s, as did probably every kid who was yeah. in the Britpop scene. Yeah. And they would all... Son of a Baker was almost... It was like a, a norm to see ocean colour scene and they would play Son of a Baker. And maybe Weller would come yeah. out... Like, they, I've seen ocean yeah. colour scene several... Weller would always come out and play the Hammond organ on it. And, you yeah. know, and through that, you would go back and you'd go, right, who was that? Before a time of streaming... Yeah. So then you would go back and yeah. buy like, you know, the Ogden's Nut Flake out and you would end up finding yeah. them. So great choice. Small Faces make their Fantastical debut. So a great first two acts, a great start to Redemption in a 10th Fantastical. So who are you going to have in your Midway Madness slot, in your third slot? Just to sort of take it into a place that, that people who subscribe to my own sort of kind of life choices, shall we say, back when I was a heroin addict. But you have to have the Velvet Underground as well. And you have to have them on just as it's got dark but they'll still come on stage wearing shades, looking <laughs> as cool as fuck. Great. Sorry, Velvet. Great choice. Any particular era for the Velvets, or do you, would you want to hear anything in particular by them? I mean, they've been mentioned quite a lot in the pod, but it's always like odd songs here and there, or acts who haven't really made it. But well, I mean, they could, they, they could anything by the Velvet Underground, to be quite honest with you, really. But um, I'd just love to hear, you know, to, to hear them doing 
what goes on and then maybe closing with with rock and roll you know just i don't know you know i just again you know another another band that that it's been said a million times you can't overstate the influence they've had on rock and roll it's, you cannot overstate it you know and, and at the time they didn't really have any commercial success but i think yeah they just there's never been a band like them since you know I don't think people have tried to be, and 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 in trying to be like them, then you've you've blown it already. Mm. You know what I mean? It's kind of there was there was something just again authentic about them. They were what they were. They had a girl playing drums. You know, people didn't do that. You know what I mean? They they, they didn't do that, and they generally didn't give a fuck what anyone thought. You know, what I mean? it was all about the music, and that has to be respected. Great stuff. So, Velvet Underground, take your Midway Madness slot. So that's your first free act. That takes us to six o'clock. We'll take a half-hour break. So you've got two acts left. You've got your pre-headline act and your headline act. So your pre-headline acts are going to get an hour and a half from half six to eight o'clock. So who are you going to have as your pre-headline act? Hightown Pirates. Oh, <laughs> awesome. So the Hightown Pirates make their Fantastical debut, although we've spoken a bit about the Hightown Pirates in a previous podcast. So, I mean, have you had much experience with the Hightown Pirates playing festivals? Because we haven't really spoken from, from a live oh, experience. We, we, Look, we haven't played a gig for two years. As, as as I'm talking to you now, it's been over two years, and uh, maybe this isn't the section of the show to go into all that. But as I said before, if I had High Town Pirates fully rehearsed with our horn section, with our keyboard player, with the girls singing, the whole band as a nine or ten piece band fully rehearsed. I was talking to someone the other day about Glastonbury '95 when the Stone Roses were supposed to headline and John Squire broke his collarbone and so they pulled out and Pulp got the gig. And I consider Pulp at Glastonbury '95 to be the high watermark of Britpop. I think that was it. That was as good as it was going to get because they were on paper should never have been there. And, and if Britpop was about anything to me, it was about the idea that. We're all going to live forever and everything's possible. And if you have the right attitude and believe in something. And Jarvis Cocker said something, and you can watch it on YouTube, prior to playing Common People, which they closed the set with. He said, you know, if you want something to happen bad enough, you can make it happen. And that's why we're here, Pulp, you know, after 17 years of being ignored. And he said, the other thing is that you can't buy anything worth having. Right now, at the time, I didn't really get what he was saying. It makes perfect sense to me now for all sorts of reasons. So in the spirit of that, I would parachute or ideally be derived by a tour bus, you know, at my own, you know, redemption in the tent festival. And I would put High Town Pirates on stage. I wouldn't put them as a headline act because I can't do that because the band that are going to go on after us just are the reason why I'm talking to you now. But I would put us above anybody else. <laughs> Great stuff. I love it. I love it. Okay, so 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 we're gonna go there, and 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 our last song in our set will be Jet Girl. And just before it goes into the outro, I will say this, and I will say this because this is going to happen one day, Stephen. Trust me, you know. I will say, look, you know, I'll say exactly what Jarvis Cocker said all those years ago. I say the reason we're here today is because I believe this, and and I've made it happen, or we've made it happen, and you lot have made it happen. So we're High Town Pirates. And so are you. Thanks for having us. And then we'll go into the outro with Jet Girl and people will just lose their shit because it will just be fucking stunning and we'll make people smile and people will be crying and they'll just be going, this is fucking where it's supposed to be. And that's what will happen. And it will happen. Great stuff. That's amazing. That's an amazing way to, to close your head, your pre-hard line slit. So, Hightown Pirates, 
go and smash it. They set it up lovely for the headline act. I think you've mentioned them and alluded to them, but it, who are you going to have as your headline act, Simon? I'm going to have The Who in 1969, actually. Not The Water Boys, not The Jam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have The Who because without The Who in that period up to, I guess, you know, live at Leeds and, and well, he's my hero. Pete Townsend is my songwriting hero. And um, on on their day, back in the day, I, I think they were untouchable as a live act. Um, I, I, I really do. And look, it's not about the musicianship per se, because some of that, you know, technically isn't great. It just encapsulates to me. I think they were they were the most English band of all time, and I think Townsend as a songwriter for maybe ten years. You know, it's all subjective, right? My generation can't explain any way and how it substitute. We got the list goes on and on and on. But the thing that that he said it himself. He said the thing about the Who when they were at their prime was when you were at a Who gig, you weren't there to do anything other than be at a Who gig. You couldn't chat up a girl or a boy. You weren't there to make small talk because we would pin you to the fucking wall and then we would fucking tear you a new one and then we'd walk off stage and that was it. And we'd have done you. And um, I think they did that in their prime better than anyone ever has done before or since. So they have to be my headline act. That's awesome. So the Who, I think you said, yeah, it's their fantastical debut. So the Who play... A fantastical for the first time after 48 episodes. So they'll be headline act. They get two and a half hours. And then at 11 o'clock, I can see in the turn, I can come back on stage. Along with the Small Faces, along with the Velvet Underground, along with the Hightown Pirates, who will join the Who on stage. You all get to play one song together. It can be any song ever. What song are you going to have all your five acts play? We're going to play It's All Too Much by The Beatles. Great track. Great track. Why Why that track, then? Why have you gone for that one? Well, it's... it's... Georgia Harrison song, right? It's, it's a song that a lot of people haven't heard. I guess it's, 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 not, one, most yeah, it's, not, it's not one of their most obvious ones, is it? It's kind of out there. There's a lot of feedback in it. It's got an amazing groove to it. I just think it, you know, it's, it's Ringo doing his kind of sloppy, kind of groovy drums. If it is Ringo playing drums, you never know. It's the Beatles do. Could have been anyone. Yeah. Well, it could have been anyone of the Beatles. I just think it's one of my favourite songs. There's just something about it. Do, do, do. I just think it'd be a great song to close a festival with. Oh, your mother. Um, it's not too much. Just, you know, I, I remember actually talking to Noel Gallagher about it like, very late one night. And he said, um, yeah, Oasis are going to cover that one day. I don't know if they ever did. But yeah, I just think it's all too much by the Beatles with with those assembled because the, the feedback element we've done by the velvets right i can tina can do the nice harmony bits you know you've got subsidized sly stone as well i mean you know it'd be amazing imagine that brilliant great stuff are you gonna have any act play an album at all is there any album you want played in full at your fantastical well i have to have the water boys to come and play this is to see don't i fair play fair play so amazing fantastical there so before we lock in your fantastical Ian Salmon sent me five names who he thought we'd have. We've only got, well, one out of five. So he had the jam, but we've spoken about the jam consistently. So an almost there. Hold steady. The hold steady. So the reason all these acts, I've seen The Who as they are these days, right? Which even Pete Townsend would say is not The Who, right? Yeah. So the reason I've chosen all these artists is I haven't seen them because they don't exist anymore. So it's a fantastical festival, right? right. So it's a fantasy festival. I've seen The Hold Steady. They're one of my favourite bands. I think he's the greatest songwriter on the planet at the moment. Has been for a while, Craig Finn. Yeah. 
But I saw them over the last, in fact, the last gig I went to this time last year was the whole steady electric ballroom in, in Camden. So I've seen them, you know, they're amazing. The jam, I saw them, right? So I, I, I went with the fantasy concept of acts that I've not seen. Nicely done. The other names we had on the list were Mick Head, but we've spoken about Mick Head. I mean, you've had Mick Head literally play to you in your front room. So. I've, I've had him in my front room, <laughs> right, exactly. And then, and then we had the Water Boys, so we've, we've got that. The other one, and he said maybe, but we've not spoken about him, is the Black Crows. So I, I'm a massive Black Crows fan. In his, when, when I'm kind of in full-on, you know, blokey rock and roll mode. mode. In fact, the, the second last piece of vinyl that I bought that just that arrived a couple of days before Lou Reed was the Southern Harmony, a musical companion oh, by the Black Crows, which is nearly 30 years old, by the way, which make, makes me feel quite old. One of the greatest rock and roll albums of all time, hands fucking down. And I saw the Crows a few times, and I saw them, God, 10 years ago, play Shepherd's Bush Empire, which was a small gig for them. And I just, my jaw was on the floor. As a, you know, they were, I mean, they just toured and toured and toured and toured. And, and you know, it, it, they're, they're not reinventing the wheel. They, you know, they're, they're like the faces and the stones and, you know, all those, they wear their heart on their sleeve. But I, they were actually the best band I've ever seen live. Wow. And when I say best, I mean in a kind of geeky, technical, like, wow, these guys have, got it fucking nailed down to the floor you know um phenomenal phenomenal band and that's one of my favorite albums of all time great album great album i've been reading the um the book by the drummer which the robertson brothers okay. don't um come come across too well but it's an amazing yeah. read <laughs> well again you probably have to separate the art from the artist yeah. i'm sure steve gorman's take on them is, is <laughs> you know yeah he, he feels very let down doesn't he yeah fair play fair play so one out of five for me and Ian and our predictions, so not bad. So let's look your fantastical win in. So we've got the Redemption in the 10th Fantasy Festival. It's taking place in Glastonbury. In your opening stop, we've got Ike and Tina Turner. In your super second stop, we've got the Small Faces. Midway Madness stop, we've got the Velvet Underground. Pre-headline stop, we've got the Hightown Pirates. And in your headline act, we have got The Who. And in your encore, we have got It's All Too Much. So I'm really happy to lock your Fantasy Festival win into the Fantastical yeah, Vaults. That'll do me. Brilliant. And Great. If, and if, um, if you need to get in, I can help you get over the fence. It'll cost you 20 quid. <laughs> and when you get there, ask for the cat in the hat. It'll sort you out with whatever you need for the weekend. <laughs> Amazing. I've got, it, I've got it covered from start to finish, brother. Amazing. Amazing. I look forward to seeing you there then. So before we wrap up then, what did the next... I know it's probably going to be quite hard to say because even though this is going out in early May, we are sitting here in mid in mid-March. What do the next couple of months look like? Like, ideally, I know you've obviously got, you've, you've got um, all of the above coming out on vinyl. So I've, I've done a pre-order for, yeah, because that, that album, I, I, it was released in May of last year, and obviously in the middle of a pandemic, and everyone was saying, oh, don't release a record, you can't support, you can't tour. We can't tour anyone. I can't afford to put a band on stage at the moment. We don't have enough fans to, I mean, that's the, that's the economics yeah. of it, Stephen, unfortunately. A full band show means I need to play in front of at least 200 people. You know, if I can get 200 people in a room and they've all paid a tenner or whatever to, to get in, that means I can rehearse the bands and I can pay everybody a little bit and we can do a show. That's the economics of it, right? So what I can do in the meantime is I can put all of the above on vinyl and we've, that's happening and there's been a pre-order. You can order it on the Hightown Pirates Bandcamp page or follow me on Twitter Facebook's rubbish for, for trying to promote musical things. I mean, we have got a Facebook page, but it's shit, really, isn't it? Let's be honest. Twitter's much better. 
So, you know, if you like vinyl, go and listen to the album on Spotify, and then you'll go, fuck, this will sound amazing on vinyl. Well, guess what? You can listen to it on vinyl in June. <laughs> Red vinyl, if you want. Gatefold Sleep. So I'm trying to just keep that kind of going. And then I'm trying to find some gigs for sort of September time, October. Um, and I spoke to Dave. Dave is the guitar player in Hightown Pirates, and he's the one guy that's been with me from day one. It's Like I've said before, it's a, it's a shift in lineup, depending yeah. on who I can get my hands on and who's sober and whatever. And I said to Dave, and he's kind of like a brother to me, we, we, we don't argue, we don't, we hardly ever see each other, but when we kind of get our shit together and I take him the kind of ideas for my songs, which I play very badly on acoustic guitar, he's the one that kind of turns it into, yeah. you know. And I said, you know what I'd like to do, Dave, is I'd like to think about how we could do a little run of shows in autumn, like five shows in seven days. Because Hightown Pirates have never had an opportunity to play two gigs back to back. It's never happened. And um, and my thinking with that is we deserve that opportunity to play every night for a week or five nights out of seven, just to let a band find its feet and, and build that kind of momentum. So that's the plan. Now, how I'm going to make that happen, I don't know. You know, But I want to make it happen. And that's what I'm going to be concerning myself with. Now, it's difficult because obviously there's a massive backlog of, of gigs that should have happened in the last year. And, and whether we can find five venues that can put us on and I can convince enough people to turn up remains to be seen. But you have to kind of make the plan, don't you? You absolutely do. So hopefully that happens. Hopefully I look forward to an announcement soon. We will, well, look, we will definitely be doing a full band show in Liverpool in the autumn, 100% and in London, and I'm going to do something down here in Margate as well. So, that, And we're doing something, we've been asked to do a little one-day event in a tent in Somerset on September the 11th. So that's already been, we've been asked to do that. I haven't officially announced it, I just have, actually. There you go. Nice, exclusive on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But So I'm trying to build some gigs around around that date, September the 11th. If we do that first in this tent in Somerset and then and then get up to Liverpool and London and Margate and, and maybe one place in between. You know, that's that's the plan. A lot can happen. Like you say, you, know, you just need someone like Tim Burgess to, get, to listen to us and put us on his listening party. And you've got, you know, a couple of thousand new fans, right? Absolutely. You absolutely have. You mentioned social media. How does someone find the Hightown Pirates on, on social media? On Twitter, obviously, because that's where we found each other. So I'm sure when you post the link, so we're just at Hightown Pirates. Oh, yeah. Instagram, if you want to see pictures of my dog on the beach <laughs> in Margate. Um, Jessica, if you like dogs. And, and, and yeah, Instagram and Twitter and, and, and Facebook. We, there is actually a hightownpirates.net page, but I don't pay much attention to it. So I'd say Twitter's, Twitter and Instagram at the moment is where I spend far too much time that's where we are great stuff so make sure you follow the Hightown Pirates on both of those platforms so that is it thank you for listening to the 48th episode of the Fantastical Podcast if you're listening on iTunes please subscribe if this is your first time listening give the podcast a review or if you're listening on Spotify or on Anchor follow the pod and that way you'll get all the episodes as soon as they come out and like we've said Twitter's a great platform first time listener we are also on twitter so follow us the podcast at fantastical p but if you're not on twitter and you like what you've heard you can drop an email to me at fantastical podcast at outlook.com unfortunately we can't play music on the pod but i'll get some tracks from simon and we'll make a spotify playlist up and we'll put on some links to there we'll put on some links to Hightown pirate stuff and all the other stuff that we've spoken about we'll put that in the episode description that is connected to the episode so a massive thank you from me 
to you, Simon. It's been absolutely amazing talking to you. You've told some great stories, some great facts. It's been a pleasure having your musical insight. How did you find collating your fantasy festival? If you, if you ask me the same question tomorrow, I'd give you five different fans, yeah. probably. <laughs> I just, I mean, I told you, like I said already, I'm like seven days at nicotine-free zone. I'm an absolute basket case. And I think those those five acts would just be about enough to shut my head up. If it was anything slightly more sensitive than that, I, I probably wouldn't. So right now, it, it needs to be those acts. So, yeah. Great stuff. It's been an absolute honour having you on. Like I said, go and follow... Hightown Pirates on Twitter. Go follow them on Instagram. Go and have a listen on Spotify. They're very easy to find. Everything on there. Two terrific albums. Some great singles that have been out this year. So please go and do that. And I'll be back soon with episode number 49. So please make sure to join me. But until then, stay safe, my fantastical friends. Please continue to spread the word. Go listen to the Hightown Pirates. And that word is fantastical. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 